a deliberate aggression that amounts to an act of war. That's how Congolese authorities described Rwanda's attempt to shoot down a military aircraft near the city of Goma. Kigali said the plane, a Sukhoi 25 fighter jet, had violated its airspace, forcing it to take defensive measures. But Kinshasa firmly denied the accusation and slammed an unprovoked attack by its neighbor. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. On Tuesday this past week, the Rwandan army fired a missile at a Congolese fighter jet, forcing it into an emergency landing in the Congolese border city, Goma. The shooting comes after months of tensions ratcheting up between the two countries. It triggered panic in Goma, where people feared they could be on the verge of war. Despite my goodwill and the outstretched hand of the Congolese people for peace, some of our neighbors could find nothing better to do than thank us through aggression and by supporting terrorist arms groups that are ravaging the east of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This is the case currently of Rwanda, which occupies areas in the province of North Kivu via a transplanted armed terrorist group, the 23rd of March movement, the M23, to whom they provide massive support both in fighting materials and also in manpower and troops. That was Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi speaking at the UN General Assembly last September. As his speech made clear, the main source of friction, at least from the Congolese side, is the resurgence of a rebel group, the M23, in the Democratic Republic of Congo's eastern North Kivu province. The M23 had been pretty much beaten back about a decade ago. But in late 2021, it made a comeback, and last year captured towns and roads around Goma. Kinshasa accuses Rwanda of backing the M23. Rwanda denies doing so, but repeated UN reports provide evidence that, indeed, the M23 enjoys Rwandan support. Fighting involving the M23 has worsened an already bad humanitarian crisis, with hundreds of thousands displaced, many of those in the past few months. Kenyan soldiers landed in the city of Goma in eastern DRC Saturday. They were greeted by local dignitaries and Congolese forces in the region. Their arrival comes as the M23 rebel group has ramped up attacks across the Democratic Republic of Congo's North Kivu province, capturing swathes of territory and inflaming tensions in the Great Lakes region. In response to the fighting in North Kivu, East African leaders, including Chisikedi, agreed to deploy a regional force led by Kenyans to tackle the M23. Since Kenya's deployment in mid-November, the rebels have pulled back from some areas, but in others the M23 is still fighting the Congolese army and other militias that have coalesced in opposition to the M23. The panic in Goma has now subsided a bit, but tensions between the two countries remain sky high. So what might come next? How should we understand the M23, what it wants, its relations with Rwanda? And how grave are risks that the violence in the eastern DRC escalates into a wider regional confrontation? To talk about all this, I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast Richard Moncrief, who runs at the moment all of our work on the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Great Lakes. Richard, welcome back on. Thanks for having me back on. So let's start then with the incident itself. As we heard, Rwandan forces last Tuesday fired at a Congolese fighter jet, which Kigali said had violated Rwandan airspace and pretty much hit the jet. I mean, it wasn't a warning shot. Yes, that's right. It was a direct shot at the jet, and the Rwandans have not hidden that. What appears to be the case is that the jet had been on a mission around 100 miles from Goma, where it was either doing a recce or indeed directly attacking the M23 insurgent group, which we'll certainly talk about later, and was coming back round to land in Goma, probably to refuel to go back to its base, which is currently outside Goma. Goma is a a border city. It backs right up onto Rwanda. And the main centre of the city and the airstrip are within a few hundred metres of the Rwandan border. Now, what that means, of course, is it's very difficult to be absolutely certain about whether the airplane did go over Rwandan airspace. It's also difficult to know if it did go over Rwandan airspace, what intention it had. I mean, it's perfectly plausible to think that it went over Rwandan airspace simply in order to line itself up to land at the airstrip in Goma. It's very difficult to be sure with the information we have. 
Now, it does seem that the missile fired by the Rwandan Defence Forces, which exploded right next to the airplane, and there's dramatic footage uh, circulating on social media, which seems to be genuine, which shows this, it seems that that damaged the aircraft, but didn't take it down. It seems that it occurred when the aircraft was going over Goma in DR Congo. At least some of the debris hit some houses in Goma. But again, would underline that's very difficult to be absolutely sure about. No, the plane then landed at the airstrip in Goma with some damage, but with no loss of life. And there was no loss of life from the uh, debris that landed in Goma. And Richard, it's fair to say that it could have been much worse, right? It seems that the Rwandans actually shot seemingly to down the plane, and it could have crashed, as you say, into the city itself. So the Rwandans say that they did not fire a warning shot because this has happened before. And it is indeed true that Congolese airplanes have violated Rwandan airspace over the last couple of months, not resulting in any casualties or any direct confrontation, but that is true. Uh, So it does indeed seem the case that the Rwandans intended to take down one of the small number of jets belonging to the Congolese army. So yes, it was in that sense, uh, you know, a direct uh, act of aggression, whether or not justified is another question, but it was a direct act of aggression. And and therefore, just in that, very worrying, yes. And the response from Kinshasa, I mean, I guess people are seething. The Congolese government called it an act of war. Just overall, the reaction, let first say that in Goma, which is most directly concerned, there was a sense of panic, a sense of this has been coming, this has been building up, we've been seeing tension along the border, not just in Goma, but further north, and a, a real sense that this could be you know, the beginning of an open war. And that panic has somewhat receded because we haven't seen any follow-up on the ground. But we should just you know, firstly emphasise, I think, that the people most directly affected are the people who live along the border. The official reactions have been rather, well, they haven't come direct from the president. They come from spokespeople. And yes, of course, they condemn this as a deliberate act of aggression, is the phrase of the spokesperson of the Congolese government. But Chiskedi, the president of DR Congo, who has had some fairly harsh words for his Rwanda neighbours over the past weeks, is currently in a big conference on agriculture in Africa in the capital of Senegal, Dakar. And I don't think, to my knowledge, he's made a direct official statement as yet. Just worth mentioning at present, which is around about 48 hours, two days after the incident, we haven't seen much international reaction either, which um, is curious. And I think it's uh, probably in large part because attention is elsewhere. The former president of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, who's leading a mediation effort between armed groups in the DR Congo, which we may talk about later, he issued a statement expressing regret and calling for calm. But we haven't seen uh, the kind of uh, you know high level formal statements from the bigger institutions involved, such as the AU or the UN. So could we back up a little bit and talk a bit about how we got here? As you mentioned Tensions have been building up over the past, really the past 18 months between DR Congo and Rwanda, and including between the two presidents, Felix Chisikedi and his counterpart, uh, Paul Kagame. And a lot of these tensions relate to the resurgence of the armed group that you talked about, the rebel group that you talked about, the M23, which is a group that's operating in the eastern DRC, particularly in the North Kivu province, and a group that the UN Congolese, and I think is widely accepted, a group that is backed by Rwanda. And so before we talk a little bit about the links between Rwanda and the M23, could we talk about the M23 itself? I mean, it had been dormant, what, since sort of 2013, but then it re-emerged in late 2021 and has since been advancing and fighting the Congolese army, particularly around the North Kivu capital of Goma. So what's happened over the last 18 months, let's say since late 2021, is that the M23 movement, which after its defeat in 2013, had gone into refuge, let's say, in both Rwanda and Uganda, expanded its operations in North Kivu province, as you mentioned, in in eastern DRC, taking over large areas of territory, fighting with the National Army, 
abusing civilians, we should add as well, recruiting both in the Congo, but also recruiting fighters from refugee camps in Rwanda and Uganda. It's very likely that that's where they get most of their fighters. And in late 2022, so a few months ago, again made a kind of new surge towards the capital Goma, where around a million people live. And there were fears at that time that the M23 might try to take over Goma, as they had done in 2012 which, of course, would lead to huge displacement as well as a major political and diplomatic crisis. Uh, They didn't do so. They moved instead into Masisi territory, which is a bit further to the west, where there's a lot of minerals, a lot of pasture land. It's a very rich territory and very fought over by armed groups, not just the M23. In expanding, as I said, they fought the Congolese army, but they've also been fighting a number of local Congolese armed groups who've been mobilized against them. Indeed, there was in May, back in May of 2022, there was a formal agreement by a number of Congolese armed groups to stop fighting each other and to coalesce into an allied front against the M23. So we see that the emergence and the spread of the M23 has led to some hugely negative consequences the UN counts around half a million displaced people in North Kivu in this period, around half of whom have been displaced by fighting since the beginning of November, because the fighting has intensified over the last three months. And Richard, we'll come in a moment to the links between the M23 and Rwanda itself. But the M23, leaving aside the ties to Rwanda, it's a Congolese armed group with its own agenda fighting in the east. So how should we understand it? Yes, the M23 is a Congolese group and its origins lie in the civil war when there were a number of ethnic militia, often indeed mostly backed by neighbours, who fought over territory and fought for political power in eastern Congo. In the early 2000s, there were a series of agreements capped by the 2003 Sun City Agreement signed in South Africa, which uh, broadly brought an end to this uh, civil and regional war. And one of its provisions was that armed groups would nominate fighters and officers to integrate into the armed forces. And a number of Tutsi groups, groups that were largely composed of Congolese Tutsi, Tutsi being an ethnic group that's fairly common across the Great Lakes region, entered the armed forces. Later in 2006, a number of Tutsi officers and pretty senior officers in the Congolese army split from the army, essentially mutinied, and created an armed group called the CNDP and fought with their former colleagues in North and South Kivu. And that's the origin of the M23. Indeed, the current leader of the M23, Sutani Mukenga, was Laurent Okunda's right-hand man. He was a colonel in the Congolese army before joining the CNDP. And then, a few years later, after the CNDP was dissolved, creating the M23. And Richard, just remind people who Laurent Nkunda is. So Laurent Nkunda, who's you know well known to Great Lakes watchers, was the leader of the CNDP, which was a large insurgent group, mostly Tutsi, certainly backed by Rwanda, which mutinied from the army between 2000 and, let's say, 6 and 9. The CNDP ended through diplomatic negotiations and Laurent Kunda remains in house arrest in Rwanda. He was kind of pulled back by Rwanda, having gone too far and committed too many abuses against civilians. The M23 was then created not by Nkunda, but by many of his lieutenants in 2009. And again, the M23, like the CNDP before it, ostensibly claimed to be supporting the interests of Congolese Tutsis, who are a marginalised community in eastern DRC. And the M23 then later, a few years later in 2012, attacked towns in North Kivu and briefly took over Goma, which was a major diplomatic incident, of course. Goma is the headquarters of the large UN force in DR Congo, and the UN uh, at that point couldn't stop them taking over. A few months later, African forces integrated into the UN, did fight back uh, the M23, pushed them out of Goma and back towards the Rwandan border, following which a diplomatic settlement led the M23 
into refugee camps in Uganda and Rwanda, since which time they've been fairly dormant, haven't heard very much from them until they started to operate again in North Kivu a couple of years ago. Richard, I mean, there's obviously in the Eastern DRC, there are a lot of different armed groups, some of which are sort of very small local militias. The M23 is not one of those, right? I mean, the M23, its leadership has army experience. It seems to be fairly well disciplined. It seems pretty well armed, and we'll come again to the links to Rwanda in a moment. But by the standards of, of the Eastern DRC, it's quite a formidable insurgent movement. That's absolutely right. And I, I think that the answer to why lies in the fact that many, if not most of its senior leaders have passed through the Congolese army. They have connections all the way across the Great Lakes. They're economically quite powerful. And you're right that they're pretty well organized and they're a large group. I can see that, you know, from far away, this looks like a great big kind of soup of warring armed groups. But if you drill down and look at the armed groups in eastern DRC, they're actually quite different. So we have the M23, who has these international connections, is quite organised and well-armed. Pitted against them now, we have a number of armed groups who really are local. They defend their territory. They may defend a specific ethnic group. They're often involved in commerce and perhaps illegal smuggling. And some of these, Richard, are the so-called Mai Mai groups. That's right, yes. And of course, these groups in part have been created and sustained to fight groups like the M23. Some of their raison d'etre is to fight uh, what they may term foreign armed groups. The M23 are not foreign, but they're foreign backed. But that's how it's framed. And they, they are generally smaller. And like I say, they have commercial interests. They often trade charcoal, for example, is, is one. Then there are other armed groups across the eastern DRC, which are not Congolese in origin, but have been there a long time. One of those is the FDLR, which comes from Rwanda and composes of some people who were guilty of the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda. And then there are a number of other armed groups, such as the jihadist ADF in Ituri, although that's quite a way from the M23 fighting, you know, geographically, that's quite a long way from where the M23 are fighting in North Kivu. And so the M23 positions itself as defending Congolese Tutsi interests and what they argue is discrimination against Tutsis, Tutsis marginalization in the Eastern DRC in particular. I mean, does that translate into a a set of demands? I mean, is it possible to say clearly what the leader you talked about, Sultani Makenga or other top commanders, what they want? Their central reason, uh, ostensible reason for fighting is to defend the interests of the Congolese Tutsi. People connected to the M23 often talk about the Congolese Tutsi not just being marginalised, but being persecuted. There's also talk about plans for a genocide against them. The word genocide is very frequently used in the Great Lakes region. It's kind of part, unfortunately, part of the discourse that one hears a lot. So that really is the core of their political platform, such as it exists. More recently, when there's been fighting in North Kivu, they have tended to take the stance that they are fighting in self-defense and that armed groups or the army are attacking them and they're defending their position. So that's a more more tactical, but that tends to be their reaction when there are reports of uh, fighting involving uh, their combatants. And they also say they want to go back into the army, or they don't say that explicitly, but that's the assumption. Well, that's the assumption. Although the M23 did talk to government officials some years ago, and there has been at least some talks before the current period of violence, we haven't seen formal negotiations. So we don't really know what the M23's negotiation position would be. The government in Kinshasa has for a number of years said that we won't integrate members of armed groups into the national army. When you see it from their perspective, there's a a good deal of sense in that. Integrating armed groups into the army really sets back security sector reform and it really sets back improving the command and control structure of the army. And in some ways, some of the problems of the Congolese army lie in the fact that so many armed groups have been integrated into it over the years. Yes, I think that's correct. That is one of the reasons. There's also a lot of mismanagement and corruption, but in a way, those two things are connected too. So I think that's right. 
in terms of the M23's political platform, I think we should also point out that the M23 are Congolese Tutsis who have been living in refugee camps in Uganda and Rwanda. So I think behind the fighting, there is also this question of what may become both of their, as it were, foot soldiers, but also of their leadership, whether they may be able to enter DRC, whether or not they integrate the army, whether they would face justice for crimes or not, whether there may be another solution for them, which is better than a refugee camp in Rwanda or Uganda. So, Richard, could we then talk a little bit about the relationship between Rwanda and the M23? I mean, how's this best understood? Well, I think we can say that the Rwanda, and there's a really big body of evidence, both in terms of the recent resurgence of M23 and historically, that Rwanda supports the M23. Supports means almost certainly providing arms, probably some battlefield support in terms of intelligence and so forth. We also know, and I think this is important to point out in the context of what happened this week, that the Rwandan army itself has, according to UN investigators, been deployed into North Kivu and has been fighting alongside or at least in the same areas as the M23, and that's formed units of the Rwandan Defence Forces. So Rwanda is deeply involved in this, despite their persistent denials. The M23 is nevertheless an autonomous organisation. I mean, it has its own agenda. They are Congolese. The desire to reintegrate and come back into the Congo in a way of their choosing is real, and they don't just express Rwandan politics and priorities, although that alliance is nevertheless very important for them. So, Richard, why has the relationship between Paul Kagame and Felix Chisikedi deteriorated over the past, what, just over a year? So President Chisikedi actually came to power promising to bring peace to the East. I mean, he initially attempted to mend relations with Kigali, with the Rwandans, but those efforts sort of fell apart in late 2021 at about the same time that the M23 resurged. So what happened between Kigali and Kinshasa? Yeah, I think it's worth underlining just what a turnaround this has been, because as you say, when Chisgeti came to power in 2019, he was willing and indeed wanted to do, you know, deal diplomatically with his neighbours, and he tried to do a rapprochement with Kagame. And indeed, to the point where uh, Rwandan forces were deployed in South Kivu in 2018-19 with the authorization of Kinshasa, to hunt down members of the FDLR, the genocide committing group that I mentioned earlier, and indeed with some success in Rwandan terms, they managed to kill some high leaders of the FDLR. And that was with the cooperation or at least authorization of Kinshasa. And as you say, things then turned around. Why? Well, it's not absolutely clear, but there may be several factors involved. One is the closer and closer ties between the DRC and Uganda. Uganda is deployed in Ituri, the Ugandan army is deployed in Ituri fighting the ADF in a completely separate conflict. And Richard, just to remind people, I mean, you mentioned a minute ago the FDLR, that's the Rwandan group with its roots in the genocide, so comprising former genocidaire, and now others have been in the eastern DRC for what, almost three decades now, sworn enemy of President Kagame. The ADF, in contrast, is this Ugandan rebel group that now operates, as you say, in Ituri in eastern DRC, and it's Islamist, and it's now declared its affiliation to the Islamic State. That's right, and yes, and it's mainly of Ugandan origin, although they have numerous members from a number of countries around East Africa and the Great Lakes area, in fact. But that's a separate conflict to the M23, but the Ugandan army is deployed there in cooperation with the Congolese army. The Ugandan deployed in, in Ituri, the Ugandan army and the Ugandan state started to talk about building infrastructure, building roads, and kind of pushing a bit in towards North Kivu. Now, North Kivu, which borders Rwanda and some Uganda, but it's got a large land border with Rwanda. The Rwandans have always seen North Kivu as their backyard. And there's a lot of interest that they have there, historically, a lot of trade interests. And the idea that is that the Rwandans got very nervous about Ugandan influence in North Kivu and played some role in the kind of reactivation of the M23. As we've said, the M23 has its own agenda 
independent of that. But that may have motivated Rwanda to, as it were, help reorganise the M23. I think we should also say that from Kinshasa's point of view, there's a degree of frustration. Uh, They came into power thinking that they could sort out the problems in the Eastern DRC. And indeed, bringing some peace to Eastern DRC was, as you might imagine, one of the main electoral platforms of Chiskedi when he came into power and one of his kind of, you know, when he made a speech, when he when he became president, you know, that was one of the top priorities of his term. And he found that it's actually very complicated, this mixture of domestic armed groups with multitude of agendas and then three countries with their own agendas, Uganda, Rwanda, and then further south, Burundi, it's extremely difficult to get consensus on a way forward. And eventually, Kinshasa became very frustrated with Rwanda. And we've now seen over the last year, a very heated rhetoric between the two sides. And Chiskedi's really now very clear that in his mind, Rwanda is the problem and is the cause of insecurity in Eastern DRC. Now, of course, that's not the whole truth, but it's got enough truth for Chiskedi to keep pressing that button. He's got elections coming up at the end of this year, which must play some role in his calculations. And Rwanda is deeply unpopular in DR Congo, not only in North Kivu and Goma, but much more widely. Opposition politicians are constantly upping the ante constantly saying that the president should take a harder line against Rwanda, whatever a harder line would mean. So we are in a kind of dangerous escalation of rhetoric, which is part of the context of what's happened this week. And Richard, so let's say, as you say, that Rwanda is worried about retaining its influence in North Kivu, potentially sees a threat in Uganda's increasing presence in the province. But it still seems a lot in response to just that, to reactivate what turns out to be this potent insurgent group, which almost marches on Goma, the provincial capital. I mean, do you get the sense that maybe even if Rwanda had a hand in the M23's resurgence, things are now being driven by what's happening on the ground as much as they are from Kigali, that the M23 itself are driving the escalation? I mean, I guess the group didn't try to take Goma in the end, so maybe something is holding it back. But this still seems like a pretty strong reaction from Rwanda to Ugandans going to fight the ADF in Ituri, right? And quite a risky one, right? I mean, risky in terms of the damage it might do to Rwanda's usually quite good, whether that's deserved or not, but quite good international reputation. I think even quite close analysts do wonder what Rwanda's stake here is. This can't simply be attributed to the M23 because we we have more and more evidence that Rwanda is really deeply involved in this fight. And I think that uh, there are some quite difficult to answer questions about why Rwanda is risking its very shiny international reputation and its uh, very good alliances with Western countries, in particular in the field of peacekeeping, because Rwanda are deployed in numerous peacekeeping operations and have the Rwandan army has an excellent or at least very good reputation in peacekeeping terms. It's a very well organized, well trained army deployed in Mozambique, Central African Republic, and has previously been employed in other theatres. And through that, it has a good relationship with Western countries. And it seems to be willing to jeopardise that relationship in order to protect its power in North Kivu. And how do we understand this? Well, the Rwandans don't admit they're there. So first off, it's immediately quite difficult for analysts to understand because the Rwandans won't say anything about it at an official level. You can talk to some, but it's it's tricky. Analysts point to, and investigators uh, and our own evidence, points to economic interests, the gold trade, land as well. There is a history of Rwandans owning considerable amounts of, or at least having some control over considerable amounts of grazing land in North Kivu. And I think then also there is a broad sense of threat that Rwanda, given its history, feels that any beginnings of a threat against its state and against its territory must be taken very, very seriously. So if we come back to the FDLR, many Congolese rightly point out that the FDLR is not a large armed group, is not a particularly severe threat uh, against Rwanda, has not launched any 
large-scale attacks on Rwanda for many years now. So the Congolese claim that, uh, you know, the FDLR are no big shakes, that they're not a threat to Rwanda. But the FDLR do exist, and their stated political aim is to overthrow the government in Kigali. And again, you know, you, you have to understand that uh, Rwanda, like some of its neighbours, has suffered from terrible mass atrocity violence. And that um, just even that small threat is something that Kigali takes very, very seriously. So I think overall, it's difficult to be sure, but I think we can see a mixture of motivations for the Rwandans to remain significant power brokers in the North Kivu province of DR Congo. And so the other thing that's happened recently is that the East Africa community has deployed forces to, in essence, fight the M23. And the Kenyans are, are sort of leading that effort. It's the first time the Kenyans have been involved in that way militarily in the Eastern DRC, I think. So what should we expect from the Kenyan force? The Kenyans have deployed into North Kivu around a thousand troops as part of an East African force. The DR Congo joined the East African community in early 2022, and there were very quickly after that plans put in place to not only deploy this force, but also initiate talks between armed groups in Kenya's capital, Nairobi. And we'll come back to that, but just to focus on the force. The force is composed of four parts. Burundian, Ugandan, and South Sudanese, all those countries are deploying troops just across their border. The Ugandans and the Burundians had already done so, so it was a case of kind of formalising a situation that was already there, and the South Sudanese intending to deploy over their border. But the Kenyans are at the heart of this when we discuss the M23, because they deployed in North Kivu. Now, the way this is framed for the East African force is this. There's a political agreement. The M23 and other armed groups, but particularly the M23, should disarm and withdraw. The force is there to enable that. But if they do not, then the force, the East African force, that's to say the Kenyans, will push them back militarily. That's the way it's framed. But the M23 didn't agree to that. That's an agreement between Chisakedi and the Kenyans. Yes, and the East African community, but yes, broadly the Kenyans, that's right. Now, the problem is that everybody's reading this slightly differently. The Congolese read this, the Congolese person on the street, but also at an official level, are reading this in terms of going and fighting the M23. So their expectation and their hope is that the Kenyans will boost the effort to defeat the M23 militarily, because in the Congolese eyes, the M23 simply have no legitimacy to be bearing arms within the Congo. Now, the Kenyans don't see it that way. The Kenyans want to emphasise diplomacy. And indeed, at the end of December and beginning of January, the force commander negotiated directly with the M23 and achieved a small tactical withdrawal of the M23 from some towns around Goma, which angered the Congolese because in their eyes, this was kind of legitimising the M23 by talking to them and by asking them to withdraw from a small patch of North Kivu. You kind of implicitly admit that they are OK occupying other areas. So we've already seen anti-East African force protests in Goma. We've already seen Congolese out on the street protesting against the East African force. So the honeymoon has been short indeed. Against the Kenyans in particular, because in Goma, people are expecting the Kenyans to sort of take the fight to the M23. And understandably, the Kenyans prefer to see this force as a way of creating space for diplomacy. Yeah, the attitude of the Congolese, this frustration is very deep. There's been 20 years of a UN force and uh, and it, it hasn't improved security in North Kivu. So we have to understand the point of view of the Congolese. But I think that the position of the Kenyans that they have to negotiate bit by bit with the M23 and hope that by doing so and applying some force, they may push the M23 back is a realistic approach. The problem is that the M23 are playing cat and mouse, as it were. They're kind of withdrawing from one area, but reinforcing in another. And it doesn't really look on the ground like a proper agreed withdrawal. It looks more like a kind of tactical reorganisation. And that's been the situation for the last few weeks. There's a couple of interesting things about the East African force. I mean, first of all, 
the fact that it's East African. The last time there was this fighting against the M23 in 2012, 2013, you talked about it earlier, that was under the rubric of what's called the Force Intervention Brigade, which was actually part of the UN mission. And it was mostly what South African, Tanzanian and I think Malawian troops. So it was much more of a South African force, whereas this time it's more East African. And it sort of reflects this pivot that Shisekedi seems to have made to East Africa, whereas his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, was much closer to South Africa, to Southern Africans. And the other interesting thing about this recent deployment spearheaded by the Kenyans is that 10 years ago, the Force Intervention Brigade, it was an African force, but it was hatted as part of the UN. So it was part of MONUSCO. Whereas this time around, there's no talk at all of this mission being part of the UN mission. And maybe in some ways that's an illustration of how expectations of the UN have changed, that no one really thinks any longer in the DRC or, you know, indeed in other places in Africa, that UN peacekeepers are really going to be able to tackle these big armed groups like the M23 or even groups like the ADF. So first, if I could just address your point about Chiskedi pivoting towards the East African community, I think between him and his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, there are there is at least a constant, which is that when you're in a dispute with a neighbour, you look a bit further afield to boost your position. And Kabila was very close to the South Africans and others in Southern Africa throughout his whole tenure. And that informed the decision of South Africans and Tanzanians and Malawians to send troops to the DRC to fight the M23 in 2012. It was then agreed that they'd be folded into the UN because there was this feeling that uh, having a parallel force fighting alongside the UN was not the optimal arrangement, and so they became part of the UN. Chiskedi then did a similar thing by, as you say, pivoting towards East Africa. He's always had good relations with Kenyan leadership, so that felt natural. Now, this East African force, well... There are broader issues at play here. The UN, in terms of peacekeeping operations, I think is in a period of reflection and in a sense of decline. The sense that the UN troops can sort out problems which involve either locally embedded armed groups or else very agile jihadist groups, and both are present in eastern Congo, I think has really gone. I think people just no longer expect the UN forces to be able to do that. And we see that in other countries across Africa. The mood in DR Congo at the moment is pretty against the UN, at least against the UN force, which are these circumstances uh, where people see big four by fours drive around and they, they see a lot of money being spent or they assume it's being spent, while that doesn't have much impact on security in the countryside. So we are in a different place from 2012. We also, of course, see an increasing amount of autonomous African forces being set up. And this, I think, is a gradual evolution of the now 20-year-old refrain of African solutions for African problems. And while, as you correctly say, there was very little, if any, discussion of folding this East African force into the UN. There has, of course, been discussion about how it's going to be financed and whether Western countries, who of course fund UN peacekeeping operations, would uh, fund it. Um, At present, there's no significant Western funding for it, but I think that question won't go away. Just another thing that I think is important for our listeners to understand, although the UN is this huge uh, operation of 14,000 troops plus, or troops and police, very expensive and so forth. And the uh, the East African force is much more modest. There is a, a certain feeling that has been expressed by the Congolese especially, that given that the UN force is in principle looking to draw down over the coming years and has already drawn down and withdrawn from some areas in the Congo of, over the last four, five, ten years, Um, there is a kind of sense that the East African force might replace the UN force. Now, of course, they're not not the same creature at all. The UN does a number of other things um, on the back of having a force present there that it wouldn't be able to do um, on the back of the East African force. And, of course, there is an expectation, and we see this elsewhere in Africa, that an African force will be more robust against armed groups than UN forces are. More willing to fight, in other words. Exactly. 
And yet, of course, the challenge now, as the Kenyans are finding out, is that uh, for the reasons we talked about, uh, you know, there's there's actually strong reasons for the Kenyans not to get bogged down in fighting with the M23 and you know the villages and towns around Goma, and to actually try to instead keep the arteries to Goma open, and then try to reinvigorate the regional diplomatic track and then some sort of diplomatic track with the M23. But the local expectations, as you say, are that the Kenyans are going to fight and defeat the M23. So in some ways, the Kenyans are running into the same problems that the UN forces have. Yes, that's right. But I think in that broader context, it's worth mentioning that the Ugandan bilateral deployment is fighting the ADF in Aturi. So the idea that African forces may actually be more robust and take the fight to some of these armed groups is perhaps being played out in Aturi in a slightly different way. Whether they're actually succeeding in significantly weakening the ADF is another question, and, and there's some doubts about that. But they are certainly fighting them at the very least. Richard, could we then talk a little bit about what a way to calm the violence in the Eastern DRC might, what that might entail? And it seems that you've got this twin challenges that are interrelated. The first is what to do with the M23, which has its own agenda. As you say, it has a, although not always articulated, but you can imagine some of the demands that it might make. And then you have Rwanda, which has its own interests, and some of those overlap with the interests of the M23. But in some ways, Rwandan interests aren't exactly the same. And it's hard to see how it ends without progress on both those tracks. And yet those tracks might be slightly different. Yes, I think those tracks are different. I'm not sure they're wholly inconsistent, but they are different. You are dealing with different actors with a different set of agendas. Of course, immediately you're dealing with armed groups who are Congolese and you're dealing with a neighbouring state. So immediately, not just the agenda is different, but the whole way that you might negotiate this is different. Concerning Rwanda, we have to assume, and, and we have some indications, that there are some conversations going along in the background whereby Western powers are saying to Rwanda, we know you're in the Kivus and you need to get out. And that will remain private. I don't see any likelihood of that becoming public I don't because I don't think Rwanda will move away from its denial of its involvement. So we hope uh, that those diplomatic conversations are fairly firm. Western countries and other powers, including the African Union, need to be pretty coherent. They need to be passing a similar message with a similar tone, and it needs to be that you need to wind down your support for the M23 and look at other ways to support your interests in DR Congo. Let's take two of those. If we look at the FDLR, well, as I mentioned, the Rwandan army is already deployed into eastern DRC to fight the FDLR. By supporting the M23, they are in many ways exacerbating the situation, and it's very unlikely that that support through the M23 would weaken the FDLR. So I think diplomats in Kigali need to be putting that across to the Rwandans, that if you're concerned about the FDLR, there are better ways of dealing with that problem. And what are those better ways? What might that look like? Well, ideally, both Rwanda and DRC would seek ways of disarming and disbanding the FDLR, which has been tried over the last 20 years. And obviously, it is tricky. But even if Rwanda's determined to pursue a military approach, it should be a targeted one. And it needs to be done with Congolese authorization, as it has been done in the past, and not carried out through the M23. Well, the M23 has fought the FDLR in, in the Kivus over the last year, but it's also caused huge destruction across the area. Then there's this question of economic interests, a lot of which is uh, very much under the table. You know, it's uh, kind of shadow or trade and so forth, not taxed and not uh, declared. It's interesting because the European Union's new Great Lakes strategy, which is being uh, finalised at the moment, is very much focused on legitimate trade. This is a tough call turning trading relationships between Great Lakes countries from untaxed illegitimate trade to something that's much more open and out in the open where Rwanda can have a legitimate interest in trade with the Congo is a tough one and it's a long-term thing. But I think that has to be part of the agenda as well because Rwanda having a trading relationship with North Kivu is a perfectly legitimate and important thing and I think that needs to be developed. So I think those are the two points we can make on Rwanda as concerns the M23, well, the Kinshasa government, as we mentioned, seems to be fairly determined to not put integration into the army back on the table. That leaves the question of, well, what would become of the M23 in and after negotiations? In 2012-13, they were kind of shuffled back into 
refugee camps in Uganda and Rwanda. I visited one once in Rwanda and it wasn't a kind of a particularly happy place, not a great place to be living. So there is this question of what both the foot soldiers at the M23 and more importantly, the leadership, what kind of future they might have. That also, of course, brings in the question of justice and whether they might face justice for their crimes. But those kind of things need to be on the table. And there needs to be some way out for the M23, because as we've mentioned, they are a powerful and destructive group and they can't just be wished away. Eventually, the Congolese officials have to take their the M23 seriously enough to negotiate with that. I'm not saying they have to kind of give them everything they want, not at all, but they have to take them seriously enough to negotiate an end to this conflict. And Richard, you think those talks, as you said, there's this Nairobi track, which convenes a lot of the different armed groups in the Eastern DRC. The M23 were kicked out of that track. I mean, do you think that's the right track for them or does the M23 need something separate? Well, I think to some degree, that's an argument on process and and we need to wait because things will evolve and the important central factors that some kind of talks are necessary the argument for having the M23 in the Nairobi process is an argument that indeed comes from them, which is that they're a Congolese armed group. The Nairobi process excludes foreign armed groups operating on Congolese territory. So it kind of makes sense in that in that way. On the other hand, as we've mentioned, the M23 is in some respects exceptional. It, it is very, very well organised. It poses a significant threat to all the plans around stabilization and reinforcement of legitimate state authority and so forth in North Kivu. And I think you could therefore make the argument that one could negotiate with the M23 separately. Of course, we we come back to the fact that the government in Kinshasa has previously negotiated with the M23 separately, but that um, didn't produce any positive outcomes uh, a few years ago. So some sort of diplomatic track for the M23, either part of the Nairobi talks or separate format to be determined. And of course, some way to go in persuading Kinshasa to accept that. Then the regional track, which you talked about earlier, so far led by Angola. There was this agreement at the end of November that you talked about, the Luanda agreement. The Kenyans, the East African force would deploy. The M23 would pull back from some positions. So those are the diplomatic efforts. And Richard, in terms of what we should be watching next between Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo after this latest incident with the plane? So firstly, on the dangers. So this incident of uh, last Tuesday is the culmination of heated rhetoric and further violence since the 23rd of November Luanda agreement, which the Luanda process, I think, has many good features. In particular, it has the buy-in of regional powers, particularly as Kenya and Angola are attempting to cooperate better within that process. So it has its merits, even if at present it's not producing any results. The risks at the moment, well, firstly, I think it's interesting to just briefly touch on the risk of declared warfare. Could Rwanda declare war on DRC? I mean, I don't think the Congolese army would ever invade Rwanda. That's not on the cards. But could Rwanda openly declare war. Well, one could perhaps imagine a scenario where the Congolese army fire missiles into Rwanda and uh, this is considered provocation and this gives Kigali enough cover to uh, move its troops openly into North Kivu under the cover of self-defence. I think one could imagine that. But there's a few factors pulling back on that. Firstly, and most importantly, Rwanda has always denied its involvement in North Kivu and has always said that North Kivu is a is a Congolese problem and that Kinshasa needs to sort it out. So quite how they would square an escalation of that kind with what they previously said would be very difficult. And it would mean, I think, that they would really seriously jeopardise a lot of their alliances, especially with Western countries. So the risk is there. The risk of further confrontation is there. But I think there are a few factors pulling back from an open and declared war. It's also, Richard, just to tell me, Richard, this is right. I mean, it's also that's just not the way it's usually done at the moment. Right. I mean, at the moment in the lakes, but in other parts of Africa as well, states tend not to go to war with each other. They tend to, to do that through proxies. Yeah. Proxy war gives you a few advantages. You're operating with groups that know the terrain better 
you have international deniability. And you can kind of sort out several problems at the same time because uh, a lot of this fighting in Eastern Congo uh, is between you know local and foreign armed groups. So you're trying to deal with your own insurgents as well at the same time. Uh, so yes, there's a lot of reasons why these countries tend to act through proxies and will likely continue to do so. Of course, uh, in the Congolese mind uh, is uh, quite understandably haunted by the civil and regional wars of the late 1990s when uh, numerous countries, and not just Rwanda by any means, Uganda as well, Zimbabwe as well, all piled into the Congo quite openly as the Mobutu regime disintegrated. And that led to widespread violence and destruction for several years. So I think that although you're right, it's these kind of limited proxy warfare, which is certainly the characteristic of war in the Great Lakes. We should understand that uh, those who live there, their memories also contain this period of civil and regional war. Right. Yeah. Very important point. Richard, maybe to end, you talked about African diplomacy, talked a bit about Western pressure behind the scenes on Kigali. In the end, you've done a great job of shedding light on some of Rwanda's motives, its concerns. But at the end of the day, Rwanda is meddling once again on the territory of its neighbour. In this case, all the evidence pointing to it backing the M23. Do you get a sense that African leaders and the Western diplomats in particular, despite their close relations in some cases with President Kagame, despite his reputation in the West, do you get a sense that there is going to be a different type of pressure this time around? So we've observed some shift in this over the last two months since the Luanda Agreement, which is almost exactly two months ago. A couple of steps here. Firstly, there was a massacre in Kishishe in uh, North Kivu, which is widely attributed, including by UN investigators, to the M23 and left some hundreds dead. There's a degree of debate over how reliable the figures are, but in any case, the widely accepted view is that the M23 massacred several hundred civilians. Then in mid-December, there is the publication, or at least the uh, kind of leaking or what have you, of the UN Panel of Experts report on sanctions busting in DR Congo, which again fingered Rwanda. It's notable that following that, so end of December and beginning of January, France, the European Union and the US all issued statements calling on Rwanda to dial down its support for the M23. That's not the first time, but it was, you know, it was all fairly simultaneous or more or less, and there are fairly strong language used. Notably, the Americans called on the Rwandans to withdraw their own troops from North Kivu, and I think that was quite a notable point. So there is pressure on Rwanda. Whether it will tip the balance, given what we know about Rwanda's alliances and the kind of usefulness of Rwanda to Western powers, if you want to put it that way, remains to be seen. But there has been something of a shift of tone over the last two months. Richard, thanks so much for coming on again. Great. Thanks for having me on. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the DRC, the Great Lakes region, on our website, crisisgroup.org. We put out a short piece this week on the shooting of the plane and the recent escalation. So do look out for that. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Do get in touch, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also write to me directly, outward at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, questions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. And I hope very much that you'll join us again next week.